what was your elevator pitch for courting Mr. Lincoln? Because I've been describing it and raving about it to people as a comedy of manners and courtship. I have two elevator pitches. Uh, one is, this is the story of young Abraham Lincoln and the two people who loved him most. One was a woman, one was a man. Elevator pitch number two is, it's a Jane Austen novel that just happens to have Lincoln in the middle of it. Well, and that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, you've written a Jane Austen novel in which Abraham Lincoln is Mr. Darcy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 652, Courting Mr. Lincoln. Lewis Byard is the author of such novels as Mr. Timothy, Roosevelt's Beast, and The Pale Blue Eye, the former recapper of Downton Abbey for the New York Times, and the author of the New York Times obituary for William Shakespeare, which appeared on the front page of the April 23, 2016 edition, the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Lou's new novel, Courting Mr. Lincoln, is funny, poignant, and a fascinating comedy of manners. And I began our conversation by telling Lou how much I loved not only his depiction of the taciturn Lincoln, but also the youthful Mary Todd, who doesn't really get her due in popular culture. She doesn't, and I see this book in part, it didn't begin this way, but I see it now as a kind of rehabilitative act for her reputation, because she got, she has had, um, a lot of mud flung at her, and her story was told in large cases by by her enemies. So, um, the a lot of that stuff is carried forward through time. When in fact she was a really fascinating, interesting, attractive young woman. And one of the nice things about setting the book in 1841, where it starts, is that you catch her at her best, and she was extremely uh, intelligent, spirited, um, well educated for her era, and passionate about politics. And she was in the manner of a Jane Austen heroine looking for a suitable husband. But this, in, in her case, the husband had to be a political candidate and he had to be a promising candidate. So it's interesting to me, speaking in historical terms, that she chose Lincoln, who was poor and mostly self-educated, still deeply in debt, um, depressive, and on nobody's shortlist to become president of anything within 20 years. So the fact that she divined some potential in him uh, really lifts her even further in my estimation. Well, and the the book's gotten fantastic reviews all over. Uh, and as I said, it's just a fun, delightful read. But I know that there's a lot of clickbaity articles. <laughs> in here. Well, I think I wrote a couple of those myself, yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that was smart. <laughs> well, the, the, it's the headlines that are clickbaitier than the articles, but right. like, one of them was for the Paris Review and is called, So What If Lincoln is Gay? And I suppose that's my point, but I don't even know that I'd use the word gay to describe Lincoln. I, 
think it's something more complicated than that. I think his his close in emotion his closest emotional relationships were indisputably with other men and with one man in particular, Joshua Speed, who was his his roommate and really his boon companion for three and a half years in Springfield. They were as close as uh, two friends could be. And it's only in recent decades, I suppose, that scholars have really started to investigate, okay, what was the nature of this closeness? And as soon as you start doing that, you get an inevitable pushback from the historical establishment. Um, well, why are you even bringing that up? What is it, you know, why do, why do you think that? Why, why are we even talking about this? And, and so part of the purpose of the book is to raise the question in a way that doesn't necessarily trigger people and that doesn't necessarily plant a flag in any particular camp. So I, I think you can read this book and, and think different things about Lincoln's sexuality, about uh, where his heart lay, but, um, but you would have to acknowledge that he was a complicated guy and he was complicated even to the people who knew him best. Well, and you, as you say, you write it in such a way that I came away going, well, what does it matter? I mean, maybe that's the way I would respond to it anyway, but, yeah. but I mean, it's just, it's just a romantic triangle um, yes. Yes. in the classic sense. And, and Joshua Speed is one of them. And it, I don't know, it makes total sense to me. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm guessing you're at the more progressive end of the, of the reader's spectrum. But actually, it's interesting. I have not gotten a lot of pushback uh, from folks about this. I've been waiting to be, you know, frankly, hoping to be boycotted by Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity. And that has not worked out for me. But um, uh, I, I've, I've acquired just a couple of Internet trolls, but really just a couple. So I think maybe it's because it's a work of fiction and not... Um, uh, a nonfiction sort of declaration, uh, planet, planting that flag, as I say, because it's a work of fiction and the feelings are kind of unspoken and, and bubbling under the surface. So it, it doesn't lend itself necessarily to agitation or propaganda. Well, and there's a fun, I mean, it, it, it allows you not only the Jane Austen-ness of it, but the examination of, of Lincoln and Speed's sexuality and your passion for things like Downton Abbey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Leads you, leads you into this, where is it? It um, leads you to a passage on like page 66 where Joshua Speed is just holding forth that is lang in language that is so gay in all the senses, <laughs> you know, in the 19th century sense of that word, but also in the third grade pejorative sense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's sort of, and it's perfect. You go, well, of course. It's the passage on 66. Mrs. Levering, I do believe your gate has the most beautiful moss roses of in all of Illinois. What do you mean yeah. you planted them yourself? <laughs> moss stars. <laughs> well, thank you for using the accent. I had to beg the uh, audio readers, to, um, the people who read the audiobook, to, to use southern accents for Joshua and Mary, because I don't think they were initially going to. But I thought, you know, you've got to get that, that, uh, that bluegrass, bluegrass cadence going. We'll lean into it a little bit. Well, and I, I imagine you've been working on this for a few years, yeah? It was about a couple years, I'd say. Okay. It was about a couple years, and it was uh, written... It's the first book in a while that I've written what they say on spec, which means that there was no publisher kind of waiting for it at the other end. I had exhausted a two-book contract, um, and I'd kind of reached the point in my career, and maybe this will be familiar to actors as well, where you're, you're starting to wonder, oh, wait, do the, does anybody really still want to hire me? Do, do um, I could just sort of slip away into the night, and would anybody notice? You know, um, because it's just been you know, uh, it's a, it's a tough business. Publishing is a tough business, just like theater. I, I'm sure is a tough business. Um, 
but I had to sort of stop and think, okay, what do, what do I really want to do? And uh, when I came up with this idea, I thought, okay, I want to write this book and I'm just going to write the best book I can and hope that somebody wants to buy it at the other end. But it was almost freeing in a way to be writing it for just me. Uh, And I suppose, and I suppose my agent too, my agent was reading at the time, but it was, I didn't have to kind of meet anybody's specifications. I could just kind of create this, this story and see how it, played out and it surprised me too in some ways that it did play out in such a, a Jane Austen way. It is a novel of manners, you're right, and almost at times a comedy of manners. When George Saunders came out with Lincoln and the Bardo, did you go, no, thinking he had written Lincoln in the bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that where I was, I had just started working on this book and someone told me, oh, George Saunders has just written a book about Lincoln and I had this, I did have this moment of absolute panic because he's George Saunders, right? Um, and but then I eventually found out it was about late late in life Lincoln. So I thought, okay, we're we're okay. And for, I I have not read the book because I didn't want to be influenced by it. But uh, people who have read both assured me that they're they're quite they're quite different. So, they are they're they're hugely different. Yeah, yeah. So and you know there have been already nine thousand one hundred books written about Abraham Lincoln. So what's another you know one or two more really? Well, and that's one of the other intriguing things about it too, because as you may know, we're in the process of coming out with our prequel to Hamlet called Hamlet's Big Adventure. (laughs) And this feels absolutely like a prequel. It's like, Uh what what was Abraham Lincoln like before he became Abraham Lincoln, you know, the great statesman? Yeah, uh, that is an interesting question. You know, I've I've written books too about, uh, you know, young Edgar Allan Poe as well, and it's really interesting to come at them when they're still unformed, um, when they're still in the making, as it were. Um, and one of the interesting things about catching Lincoln at this particular stage is he's not the, this um, elder statesman that we now revere. He's still feeling his way. He's very ambitious. And in the, back in those days, he was a bit of an attack dog for the Illinois Whig Party. That was the Whigs before they were Republicans. They were Whigs. Mm. And he, he would go and debate Democrats, and, and he was considered a pretty uh, sharp-elbowed kind of character. And uh, there are two things in the book that he was most embarrassed about in his life. One of them is sort of the climax, so I won't reveal that, but one of them had to do with a moment in the Springfield State House where he and some other Whigs were trying to deny the majority Democrats a quorum. So they actually leaped out a window um, of the building where they were. I think they were at a church in the time. They jumped out a window and... Um, and you know, fell ass over and in the courtyard below, and humiliated themselves. The Democratic papers made hay with it for for weeks afterwards. So, and whenever people brought that particular th- subject up l- later on in life, he would he would stop the discussion right there. He just didn't want to bring it up. So, so we're catching Lincoln, you know, when he's not quite the Lincoln we know. And well, that's- and was that because it was politically stupid in that it gave his enemies ammunition, yeah. or because he really was a shy? reticent guy and he let his you know he let his emotions get the better of him and i'll never let that happen again i think it was just the indignity of it i mean they were just sort of sprawled there in the courtyard being laughed at by by their democratic opponents so i think it was just the the embarrassment of 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 that moment and and in my mind he was already engaged to mary todd at that point so i'm guessing she would have let him have it quite a bit because she was very deeply involved in his career from the start so yeah just one of those those failures of judgment that happens to people. Well, and going back to a thing you said about some because it's fiction, it allows you to t- 
talk about things in a way that maybe isn't so triggering for people. It's there's something wonderful about this notion of filling of, of fiction writers or playwrights going uh, filling in the cracks, you know, yeah. filling in the backstory. There's something. I mean, you have to conform to historical fact. I I imagine to a degree, but you have so much room to imagine other things. Yeah, well, I've always maintained that the historical novelist goes in where where the historical record falls silent because the history can tell us so much, but only so much. So right. uh, that's the point where the novelist can properly and rightly, I think, go and say, "All right, let's. I'm going to imagine my way into this." situation where we don't necessarily have all the documentation. We don't necessarily know exactly what happened. For instance, we still don't know why Lincoln and Mary Todd broke off their engagement, which they, which happened once. Um, so try to imagine my way in and, and see what that looks like, you know, not in the hopes of creating a definitive picture of that, of that time or these, those people, but just a, a speculative portrait that, that you hope convinces at a psychological level. How much research did you have to do about the manners and the Springfield in the 1840s, et cetera? Or do you have all that stuff just at your fingertips? Exactly. It's just like like that guy on Jeopardy. I have it all just just lodged up there. No, uh, it was a it was a fair amount of of research. A lot of digging into sort of primary sources, reading of the Sangamon County newspaper, uh, which is still available. Actually, the, 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 the things that really made me want to write the book was a series of letters that Lincoln wrote to Speed in 1842. These were in the months leading up to Speed's own marriage. Speed had left uh, Springfield and gone back to his home state of Kentucky. And I was reading these letters and thinking, wow, these are two guys that are just sort of coaxing and coaching each other toward what we would now call a heteronormative lifestyle. And I thought, among other things, they're terrified of the wedding night. And Lincoln demands that Speed write him the morning after the wedding night to let him know how it had gone. So it's these are not two, you know, bachelor studs. These are not two alpha males, you know, preparing. They're, they're terrified about prospect of matrimony. And to see that playing out, uh, you know, in these letters was really fascinating to me um, and a really interesting dynamic. That is fascinating. I mean, you, we, we've read in, in the history books that mention it at all, that uh, they uh, Lincoln and Speed shared a bed for three years or whatever it was, but that's just the way things were done back then. Um, uh, and it's which, true that bachelors did did share beds back because beds were expensive. But the, Lincoln and Speed shared theirs for three and a half years. But beyond the the, the bed itself, oh, I should add too that you know Lincoln was a, a long guy. The beds were pretty small, so they would have had to spoon just to fit into a bed together. So that brings up interesting pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me, what makes them interesting is not just that they shared a bed, but that they, they really seemed to share a life. They were inseparable. Um, Speed himself would later say, later say that no two men were ever closer than they were. And I think even conservative biographers have, have acknowledged that Speed was the one who was probably the only one with a key to Lincoln's heart. Now, whether that expressed itself sexually, I don't know. Um, it's, I think it's certainly possible, but I almost think it's beside the point because the, the thing about their intimacy was they were, in effect, preventing each other from getting married. They were getting in, in the way of this, as I said, this this heteronormative path that they were supposed to follow. And particularly a politician in those days, and maybe even today, still still needed to get married. You, you still yeah. need to. There were exceptions like James Buchanan, but he was a very rare example. Well, and you're and you're very discreet about the physicality of their relationship in the book. I mean, yeah. I think anybody could come away with it going. Yeah, they did. No, they didn't. 
Yeah, I, I, I feel so. And I sometimes wonder if I was too discreet because I, a couple of the early reviewers, including the review for Publishers Weekly, seemed to miss the homoerotic angle completely. They just saw it as Mary. I don't know how you could. but With well, all the wrestling? <laughs> I know, I know. I thought, I thought at times it was like, is this, you know, they, they danced together at one point. Um, I thought my gaydar was bad. <laughs> there's a scene in a spring house later in the book where the, things are getting kind of hot and heavy. So, uh, and you get, even get the wet shirt that Mr. Darcy had, right, from Pride and Prejudice. So, um, so I think it's I think it's really clear. But I I like the idea of leaving it in the mind of the reader. There are a couple moments in the book where I feel like okay, this is a moment where sexual passion could break out. In one case, it's with Mary Todd, Lincoln and Mary Todd. In one case, it's with Lincoln and Mary Speed. And I deliberately leave a space break there because I think it's just more interesting for the reader to imagine, okay, what's going to happen there? What's going to happen now? And for the reader to fill those things in. I mean, I don't know. Do we want to see, do we want to see Lincoln naked on page? I I don't know. How far did the Marfan's disease uh, (laughs) manifest? Well, you know, in L.A., that this came up on Twitter. There's a hashtag, Hot Lincoln. They discovered this statue that was made in the 30s or 40s, and it's in front of a, court, a courthouse in L.A., and it's amazingly smokingly hot. It's Lincoln who's shirtless, totally ripped, um, with just trousers, and he's tucking his, hand, his thumb under the waistband and sort of tugging down the waistband of the trousers. It's unbelievably erotic, and it's pretty hot. And you think about it, Lincoln was, you know, he was a pretty active guy. He was a wrestler. He was splitting all those rails. So I'm guessing he would have had a pretty ripped core, at least, at the very least. I'm Nina Totenberg, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. We have two performances left of our spring and summer of 2019 tour of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged revised in Lakeside, Ohio on July 18th and in Lake Placid, New York on August 10th. We will have more performance dates starting this fall of 2019, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, and we'll announce those dates just as soon as we can. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with Lewis Byard, the author of the wonderful new novel, Courting Mr. Lincoln. The decorous nature of how you've described all the physical interactions, it very much continues to add up to the, the Jane Austen quality, the 19th century quality of it. Yeah. There's also, I should add, another influence in the book was Henry James, um, uh, who does also a lot of drawing rooms, a lot of parlors. And it's the feeling of just these very turbulent emotions coursing just beneath these very placid, genteel surfaces. But it, it creates... Um, in the case of James, this this extreme tension, and you just keep waiting for that surface to crack open, and for these passions to come rushing out, and occasionally they do, and it's and it's so powerful. But the overall effect, all effect, it, for me is kind of excruciating. It's like you just want them to, oh please, somebody do something, do something. The fact that they don't, you know, makes it just more intense than 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 actual sex would, I think. 
I totally agree. And I think it's that tension that you're talking about that for me added so much to the, both the humor and the poignancy of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a very funny book too, in addition oh, to that. I'm glad you found it. So I, I, I enjoyed, I'm glad to hear that people say that because that, and maybe that is some of the Jane Austen influence because her stuff is, you know, so entertaining all the time. I loved on, on page 10, you have this notion of Mary, choosing her own age what age would she prefer to be yes and yes. i was wondering is that from a letter from her or is that, that's author's invention author's invention um because you know the the todd girls mary and her sisters tended to, her older sisters had married rather young like 18 or 19 and at this point she's she's gasped she's 20 years old and not married and there was a great deal of pressure uh more pressure really on women to marry at a young age but lincoln and speed this is another thing that makes them unique and interesting is that they waited so long lincoln went well into his 30s was he 31 32 when he got married and and speed was maybe late 20s so they were they were late to market and um um and that's another thing that makes them interesting well and speed, then, i said speed, speed did get married but they did not have children and you can make of that people can make of that what they like yes we will um <laughs> And and Lincoln, I think you have Lincoln say late in the book on a subject such as this, uh, slavery. I should prefer not to be considered reasonable. Yeah, is that a quote or is that yours? That's me. Oh. That's me. But I love the idea that you thought that was a quote because that that's the, the part of what I do is sort of large actual quotes into a fictional context with the hope that. Um, that you blurred the distinction between the, the fictional and the fact. Uh, and, and when I wrote The Pale Blue Eye, I, I did a, a, one of the narrators is Edgar Allan Poe, and I wove in about, I'd say 1% of it was his actual language, and then I kind of just lifted off of that. Um, so it, it makes it fun. And uh, maybe ethically suspect as well, the same. That, that, <laughs> because because uh, readers have been, you know, a couple of readers, I've heard from a couple of readers who just, they got to the end of the book and said, well, how much of this really happened? You know, I, I want to, they, they want charts. Yes. They want to, okay, this happened, this is me, this, this happened, this is me. So um, I can only think of a couple of things where I, I just changed the historical, I can only think of one thing where I changed, actively changed the historical record. And that comes in the climax where Mary goes on a journey, a river journey that she did not actually take in real life. And I just wanted her to do it. I just felt she, for the purposes of the story, she needed to do it. But um, most of the other stuff is just me kind of rejiggering chronology and, and compressing and, and stuff like that. Nothing that I think is too serious. All within your rights as a novelist. All within my rights, damn it. My first <laughs> amendment rights. Um, I wanted to know, because it feels like such a wonderful prequel to what we know of Lincoln. Is there likely to be a sequel? Because I would love to see your depiction of Mary Todd Lincoln in her later years. It seems like you would give her a very um, sympathetic oh. telling. I know, but it'd be such a sad story. It was really the saddest story of all. I mean, I, I can tell an anecdote toward that. Um, this is about 10 years, I think, after Lincoln's assassination. She was traveling across the Atlantic because she spent some time in exile in France. And she tripped and nearly stumbled down to her to her these steps on the ship almost her, certainly if she'd fallen it would have been to her death but at the last minute a woman's hand caught her and the woman was sarah bernhardt mm. um and she said that after talking with 
Mrs. Lincoln for half an hour and seeing what a desperately sad and tragic figure she was, she'd wish that she'd let her fall <laughs> down those steps. That was, that was the level of just tragedy that this woman, that Mary Todd Lincoln carried with her through life. So I, I, I get bummed out sort of thinking about her that way. And, I, and because I grew to like her so much in the course of writing this book, I tried to imagine a parallel future, you know, where Lincoln isn't killed and, and, and they have, have some kind of happiness, post-White House happiness together. And, and she doesn't quite um, go quite as far around the bend as she, she actually did. So, so yeah, but that's a long-winded way of saying, I, don't, I, I, I just want to keep Mary as I, as I know her now, as this spirited young woman who's, who's on the, the look for a, for a candidate. Well, and I love the idea that an actor killed Lincoln and an actor saved Mary Todd. And an actor uh, saved Lincoln's son, Robert. That's you right. Know Edwin Booth. That's right. Uh, caught, caught Robert Lincoln as he was about to tumble in front of a train. I mean, this, you, can't, you can't make that shit up, Austin. Or I don't think you can. Nope, it's in the novelist's handbook. You're absolutely right. You cannot <laughs> make this shit up. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your historical prequel via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. And you can follow Lewis Byard, too, on Twitter at Lewis Byard. Thanks, as always, to bed sharer Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger. Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Jennifer Joplin. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to National Public Radio's Nina Totenberg. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 652 1956ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Are we starting? Well, I, I have started recording, but neither one of us has said anything particularly brilliant just yet. <laughs> But as I've proven over 12 years of doing this, being particularly brilliant has never been a prerequisite. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.